0: On today's episode of the Keto Camp podcast, we discuss the connection between the gut and the brain with Dr. Rachel Brown and Ali Houston.
1: When I changed my diet around 2016 to a keto diet. After that, my autoimmune health checkups were clear, and I didn't get the rash anymore, and they just went away. When I brought up the fact that this had happened, of course they're happy, but if you suggest that it's nutrition, most doctors tend to look at you like you've grown another head, or like you're not there somehow, and they just
0: want you to leave, Hey, Keto Camper, Benazzati here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast, and I'm excited to bring on for the first time Dr. Rachel Brown and Allie Houston. They're doing some great work at MetSci. Uh, they're over in the UK, you could tell by their accents, and they take a deep dive into mental health and what the gut microbiome, the connection between the gut microbiome and brain disorders, mental health conditions, etc., They'll both get into their backstories. You'll hear about Ali suffering from food addiction, his debate uh, with a vegan uh, plant-based person on the news station, uh, his autoimmune diseases, and what he did to discover keto and carnivore, and it changed his life. And then you'll hear from Dr. Rachel Brown on her story with weight loss resistance, doing Atkins, sugar addiction, and what keto carnivore did for her and how she's using it to treat or to work with a lot of patients. It's, it's really remarkable, the research they're compiling and the work that they're doing. And of course, we discuss how mental problems are linked to the gut microbiome. They're going to give you a masterclass on LPS, the gut microbiome, what wheat protein zonulin does to open up tight junctions, create neuroinflammation, three lifestyle behaviors that cause leaky gut. You're going to want to hear about that. How mental stress can wreck the gut microbiome. Very important. And then we discuss something very controversial, which is people who only believe in evidence-based medicine and the flaws, the propaganda with that, and also the corruption with that. And then we discuss how do you find an approach that works for you and your unique needs, your unique health history. They'll give you some thoughts on that. We'll talk about triglycerides, the HDL ratio, Allie's going to share his McDonald's experiment. (laughs) That's fun. It's going to be a great time. You're going to love them. I cannot wait to bring them on shortly. Before I do, I want to acknowledge today's Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from N.P. titled, Very Informative. I've been binging these episodes. They are so valuable, and they help me get my keto done better. Ben gives solid advice, lots of tips, all focused on health and nutrition. Thank you for these episodes and you are welcome. I'm so glad you're enjoying them. Keep implementing the info, keep taking action, keep showing up. We'll keep showing up for you and we appreciate you listening and taking the time to leave that rating and review. If you have not left the show a rating and review, please do so right now. Maybe I'll read yours on the next episode and it really helps the show grow and change more lives. If you missed the previous announcement, we are making available... The challenge recordings from our seven-day keto challenge that we just wrapped up with Dr. Jason Fung, Dr. Boz, and Dr. Barry, and myself, seven sessions, two hours each, and a bonus session with professional notes, all discounted for you. Head over to ketochallengerecordings.com to check that out, or click the link in the podcast notes down below. Let's talk to Dr. Rachel Brown and Allie Houston. Dr. Rachel Brown is a consultant, psychiatrist, and a functional and metabolic practitioner. Ali Houston is a metabolic mental health coach trained by Precure and Dr. Georgia Ead. Rachel and Ali both work as a coach at MedSci, empowering people with mental illness to use proven diet and lifestyle techniques to heal themselves. They offer coaching programs for your mental health no matter where you are in the world. We're going to put a link for their website down below. Here's Dr. Rachel Brown and Allie Houston. Allie and Rachel, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast, you two. Thanks, Ben.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: So both of you have very interesting backstories, and you're both doing some great work about the metabolic connection to mental health, and we'll get into all of that. So we'll start with your story, Rachel. I know that you got you first started with Atkins, and it kind of evolved over the years, and that's A similar story for so many people who are doing keto these days. They've kind of done Atkins in the past. So I'd love to just rewind and if you could share your story and your journey to how you got to where you are today.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, so I was still a student at university when a family friend introduced Atkins and his book to me. And I essentially started out following Atkins for vanity reasons, I think, in terms of kind of weight loss and body composition. Um, But really, I can't even remember now so long ago what was within the book, but I felt like a lot of the explanations and the science made a lot of sense at the time. I've had a bit of a journey within the low carb world over the years um, because of a, a sugar addiction, which I only really laterally was able to identify as a sugar addiction um, really, since I've gone keto. Um, but for many years, I thought I was an emotional eater and had emotional eating type issues. And I ended up straying away from very low carb to follow more intuitive eating programmes. And I remember there was one where they recommended um, that you keep all the foods in the house um, that you would normally try and restrict um, so that and basically keep so much food in the house that you would never be able to finish all of it. <laughs> And um, and and I remember this particular program recommended that you just eat anything that you want, but do it mindfully and bearing in mind how hungry you are. And there'd be a scale to think about your level of hunger. And yeah, and such a bad idea now looking back. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Seriously.
2: <laughs> but I. But however, having said that, despite having a sugar addiction and not fully realizing at the time, I did manage to um, eat more in moderation and. And I did that for a while. I then went through a vegan stint for about a year or 18 months, which is, pro- which is hands down the worst decision I ever made from a dietary point of view, in my opinion. Um, and then eventually got back to um, lower carb again. Um, I've been a big follower of Mark Sisson for many years, so really interested in the ancestral health perspective on everything. Um, and, and that obviously fits really well, with uh, low carb and keto, and, and more animal-based type nutrition, and it was about six or seven years ago, I decided to go properly keto because I'd been I'd been more of a doing more of a primal type diet, um, but I found myself snacking a fair bit in the evenings on kind of seventy percent dark chocolate or higher, and um, yeah, keto really improved the kind of relationship with food that I had in terms of the more compulsive type eating that I would sometimes get around sugar um, and then it was um, Vanessa Spinner, who I really respect her work and, and followed along um, with a lot of her podcasts and social media and stuff that she does and it was she was doing a carnivore experiment at one point in time and that's how I first heard of carnivore and so that that's how I got into that and that was um coming up for four years ago now so that's my journey
0: Wow. Okay. So it's a very fascinating journey. And what what an approach to I never heard of that approach to keep all the foods you shouldn't eat stocked up so that you're never going to finish. I guess the mindset around that is like a lot of people go through their stash and they're like, I'm not, I'm just not going to reorder it. Let me just finish it. So that kind of the thought process is let me take care of that because it's never going to finish and it's always going to be there. Is that the the mindset behind that?
2: I think it was to make it so that it was less desirable and and like you can have it at any time. So then you you shouldn't really be thinking about it or or craving it particularly. But then I was conscious um, myself that I would I would manage my appetite by I I got very good at knowing how much I was going to have to eat. And I I mean, I remember buying a whole sort of carrot cake and just eating the icing off the top of it. But I made sure that I had some protein as well because I knew I wasn't really going to be full after the The sugary stuff, and it's just—it's horrific now when I when I think back to the sort of things I did in the pursuit of having a better relationship with food.
0: Interesting. Um, So, mm -hmm. your sugar addiction—is it? Are you the type of person who needs to abstain, meaning you can never have any sugar, or are you more of somebody who needs to have it in in moderation? You could still have it in moderation from time to time, and doesn't open up a whole new door for you.
2: Yeah. So that's a really interesting question. I. I've always considered myself an abstainer. However, so just to put it into perspective, it was keto improved my relationship with sugar and sweet tastes, probably about 80 to 90%, but there were still a few foods that were compulsive, you know, like nut butter and dark chocolate on keto. And it's when I excluded those remaining foods, um, which and, and went primarily carnivore-based, that I, I really recognised the extent um, that, to which I'd had a sugar addiction in the past and and a problem with sweet tastes. It's been, gosh, three and a half, over three and a half years now. And I have a 10-year-old son. And so occasionally when we've been out somewhere, if he's had some ice cream and hasn't finished it for dessert, I've decided I'm just going to test myself. And I have a spoonful or two. And I actually really despise the taste of sugar now. And that surprises me because for a long time I thought I'd be somebody who like one spoonful would be one spoonful too much, and I don't really think it is. Having said that, I haven't really properly tested out larger quantities, and I suspect if I was to go back to having very sweet tastes, um, that I probably wouldn't would get into more of a cycle of um, more of an addictive sort of nature around those foods. But I, I don't really know. That's just my my. Kind of educated guests at
0: this point. Yeah. You know, the great thing about carnivore, as you know, both of you, is that it really doesn't leave any wiggle room. With keto, you could have these keto treats. You could trade a sugar addiction for a stevia addiction or a monk food addiction. But with carnivore, it's like animal-based. There's no opportunity for that. You can't really transfer that addiction. So that's kind of what happened with you. Like you know you're eating meat, nothing else, and you don't have the dark chocolate, you don't have those. Keto cookies or whatever it is, and that addiction doesn't have to get transferred. It's just gone, essentially. Yeah.
2: And for me, I think the most fascinating bit has just been the preoccupation with food. It's just just hasn't been there at all, and it's just it's it's meant that like I've come to having a very natural relationship with food and and, rec- and my own hunger and satiety, and and uh, yeah, it's just it's just been very just mind blowing from my point of view. I can't think of a better way of putting that. It's given me such clarity.
0: Yeah, fabulous. And Ali, what about your backstory? Did you also struggle with uh, food addiction, sugar addiction? And what, what was what was the journey to get you to where you are today?
1: Yeah, well, I would say that I did struggle with food addiction. And my mom's a very good home cook. And so she would make really delicious food, nutritious food, and I would eat that. But given half the chance and left to my own devices, I would have beige stuff filled with seed oils and sugar and flour. And I was allowed cereal pretty much ad libitum because, you know, I was having it with milk, which is wholesome, I suppose. And I was, you know, there's all these health messages on cereal packs. So I was a cereal junkie. Absolutely no doubt about it. I would have it for breakfast, lunch and dinner, and I would have my dinner. I'm not sure if I had a, you know, a fast metabolism, I was just uh, exercising a lot, or what. But my weight didn't become a problem until my kind of late twenties, and the um, the kind of food addiction side didn't really dawn on me until much, much later. It was, um, you know, woven in with a kind of long history of poor metabolic health. You know, I had I collected autoimmune diseases and I had surgery for one of them. It threat one of them threatened my eyesight. I had to get my retinas checked regularly because you know, most mainstream doctors they look at autoimmune diseases and just say, Well, let's cross our fingers. See you in six months. And um, I just accepted that. And you know, food and these autoimmune gut mental health issues. I just didn't see the connection beyond maybe what Rachel's saying about preoccupation. You know I would uh, I would maybe if I was drinking alcohol, I would eat something really unhealthy that night, and then the next day I would feel cravings for sugary foods or those types of processed unhealthy foods. Um, but, like a lot of people for many, many years, I think I thought I ate pretty well, and actually, I really, really didn't.
0: That's the case for so many people. you're right because you look at these cereal boxes, and at least in America, you have the stamp of approval from the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, and all these you know buzzwords, heart healthy, et cetera. And the truth is it could be it is not healthy. it's the complete opposite of what you think it is. So You had these issues with autoimmune, and you're right. Most conventional doctors believe autoimmune is just, you're kind of unlucky, it's in your genetics, and let's monitor it. And even it'll take years before autoimmune is even diagnosed, meaning you could have it, but before it shows up in your lab work, I mean, it's going to be many, many years. So what happened to your autoimmune and the symptoms? Did it go into remission? Yeah, so I had a disease which is suspected autoimmune
1: Called achalasia, which is where you, uh, of the cardia, which is where your um, esophagus just kind of closes. And I started losing weight rapidly around about the age of eight or nine. And clearly my parents were disturbed because I loved my food, but I wasn't able to eat much and I was losing lots of weight. So they suspected the worst. But the doctors took a while to find out what it was after a barium swallow. Because it's so unusual to see it in children. You know, I was part of a, an international study on a handful of children, less than 10, that they could find who had the, the disease at that age. Mostly it affects adults and, um, you know, over the age of 35 or so. And so I got a balloon dilation of the esophagus a couple of times and it allowed me to swallow more or less normally. And it's, it's a bit baggy my esophagus at the bottom and I still have to kind of squeeze food down slightly. But um, it didn't get worse again. And then the, thankfully, uh but I had another autoimmune disease which was getting worse called sarcoidosis. And I happened to have been under observation for another disease that I had, where they took a chest x-ray on, you know, a regular basis. And they found a kind of shadow on the lung. And obviously that's not a phrase you want to hear, but they had to do a biopsy and it turned out it was this sarcoidosis. And I realized that the kind of target-shaped rash I had on my skin in some places um, was the same thing. And they had to check my retinas because it can move to the retinas and cause blindness. And then I was being regularly monitored for that. And when I changed my diet around 2016 to a keto diet, After that, my autoimmune health checkups were clear and I didn't get the rash anymore. And they just went away. When I brought up the fact that this has happened, of course, they're happy. But if you suggest that it's nutrition, most doctors tend to look at you like you've grown another head or like you're not there somehow and they just want you to leave. Like my general practitioner, when I'd really fought hard to get her to refer me to a psychologist or a psychiatrist about my mental health issues, and she eventually did, and I got a diagnosis of ADHD and went on medication, which got progressively less effective, and I felt the side effects more and more. So I was disillusioned, I still had my chronic anxiety, my seasonal depression, it hadn't worked, in other words, this diagnosis and treatment. Um, and then I I kind of you know, thought that going on a keto diet might help me control my weight, so I did that. And almost all my health problems went away. And when I went back to her and told her, I was so excited because I thought she would be excited. I was so naive, I thought she would be excited. I thought she would be like, let's go out into the world and tell everyone about this. And she kind of acted like I was making the whole thing up or something.
0: That's a shame. And I believe it as well. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, that's the sad truth. It's like, how could nutrition do that? It's like, they're not trained in medical school that nutrition can do that. I think the average in America of uh, four hours of medical training, for uh, excuse me, four years of medical training, less than 10 hours of it is nutrition. So... It doesn't make sense. It's a cognitive dissonance. or like, how could it be? It's, this is just a miracle. They talk it up as a miracle. So, okay, so you did keto and you saw huge improvements, obviously. You did it for the weight loss, which is interesting because same thing for you, Rachel. You did it for more vanity purposes, like many people, and then they kind of stay because of the health benefits. But at what point did you transition to more of an animal-based approach, Ali?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I've, I played with things from early doors and, it, and I have to say that I, it was mixed reasoning that I um, went into it in the first place. My supervisor, I was doing a physics PhD. I'd started a physics PhD at the time in gravitational wave physics. And my supervisor, Professor Ken Strain, who just retired early recently, he was involved in international collaborations to find gravitational waves. They did it a year into my PhD, but I wasn't really well enough to work effectively. And I was lucky because he'd healed his chronic fatigue syndrome ME with diet. He'd been so ill in his early 40s that he was told that he probably wouldn't work again. He was more or less bedridden. And then he read Good Calories, Bad Calories by Gary Tobbs and changed his diet to a keto diet. And six months later, he was running 10Ks again. Really bright guy. He developed this um, deep side interest in nutrition. And so when he saw that I was underperforming in spite of having the qualifications to get into the physics PhD program, he suggested that I start reading around these these topics. And I was asking questions of him because he was saying things like margarine isn't food and nobody should eat wheat. And I only eat once a day. And I was thinking, if this wasn't a physics professor, I would just stay away from this person. And that shows my intellectual snobbery. But I think it also shows how unusual it was, especially seven years ago and, and certainly before that. And so he was more or less carnivore by then. He had the occasional like Brussels sprouts or whatever vegetables that he liked from time to time. But I was open to the idea of that from the get-go because he pointed out what a lot of people are pointing out now around people like Ambro Hearn, where trying to fix your health using diet and lifestyle, particularly a ketogenic diet, seems to work well for a lot of people. But there's a large subset that It doesn't seem to work for very well, or not at all. And Amber is an interesting case in point because you know, she was on keto for many years and then had to go carnivore before her bipolar went into remission. So that's echoed in lots of other anecdotes. And I was on the blog, before I heard of Amber and I was on the blog Zero Carb Zen, which had a lot of these stories. And so carnivore was an idea that I was warm to from the get go. And then I just went in and out of different modes of keto and carnivore over the last seven years and kind of gravitated more towards what I think of as a positive, intuitive eating, not necessarily the kind where you stack your cupboards with cupcakes more than you'll ever be able to finish, but more like that you get to really understand the different types of hunger that you feel and act on that. And when I do that, what I find myself eating is fatty meat, fish, eggs, um, shellfish,
0: and there's not much room for anything else. Hey, when was the last time you bit into a juicy burger or a perfectly cooked steak and thought to yourself, this is the best thing I've ever tasted? If it's been a while, it's probably because most meat products... Are conventionally raised, which not only affects the flavor profile, but significantly diminishes the beneficial nutrients and minerals. And believe it or not, even products that are labeled as grass fed or ethically raised to make you think they're high quality, often finished on grain or in factory farms, which is why I am so excited to share something with you today that will not only help you avoid the hormones, antibiotics, and pesticide residues that diminish the taste of conventionally raised meat, but could also save you nearly $1,000 over the next year on your grocery bill. And the best part, this may be the best tasting thing you've had in a long time. So what the heck am I talking about? Head to the podcast notes down below, click the link, enjoy your wild pastures. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. I want to talk about the gut-brain connection because both of you specialize in mental health and we know that mental health disorders are just through the roof, especially the last three years with COVID and how that's gone crazy with depression and suicide rates, not just in the US, but it's a problem that the whole world faced, COVID, which is a unique problem because that's first time in our lifetime that the whole world faced the same problem. It's kind of like a world war. This is kind of like a world war issue because we all faced it. So a lot of people are dealing with depression. They're dealing with ADHD. They're dealing with bipolar disorder. They're dealing with all these mental health issues. What is the connection? And Rachel, I'll throw this to you first. What is the connection between your gut microbiome health and your brain health and all these mental disorders? Oh, will
2: one of my favorite topics Um There are are quite a number of different connections and um, I often think it tends to get quite complex quite quickly within the human body. But trying to keep things fairly simplistic, there's a hardwired connection in terms of the vagus nerve and some other nerves that innervate the gut. And we know there's bi-directional communication from gut to brain and vice versa. And, you know, our gut microbes are involved because they produce neurotransmitters, but they produce other metabolites such as short-chain fatty acids which also communicate so there are different lines of communication and um, you can think along kind of broadly hormonal communication signaling so uh, cortisol is involved in the bidirectional communication but also immune mediators so the immune system particularly cytokines and uh, leaky gut's probably one of my favorite topics of all time Uh, Just picking up on the autoimmunity um, issue that we were talking about earlier. So like gluten for everybody, we know about the interaction between a component of wheat protein and zonulin, which is a component of the gut cell wall. And we know that that interaction opens up the tight junctions and gives anybody leaky gut, not just people with celiac disease. And when you have increased intestinal permeability or leaky gut, uh, there are, that it's kind of open game for things from your gut to leak across into the bloodstream, and there's particularly a lot of research around lipopolysaccharides or LPS, um, and and these are just components of uh, gram-negative bacteria cell walls. And it's been very clearly demonstrated in research that once LPS get into the bloodstream, you end up with a situation called endotoxemia, and that just means high levels of LPS, and that triggers off a whole immune cascade immune system response with release of inflammatory cytokines and lps in itself can activate immune resident immune cells in the brain in the form of the microglia or microglia and and then you set up this sort of self-perpetuating cycle where the immune cells in the brain release more inflammatory cytokines and free radicals and you end up with oxidative stress and inflammation and essentially when I think of inflammation in the body I think a lot about immune system activation and we know that you can lose nerve cells in your brain as a result of this inflammation and you can end up with inflammation in your brain essentially because of all these immune mediators flying around the place and they can cross the blood-brain barrier and enter the brain and and kind of wreak havoc there and then that brings me on to another aspect of it which is the blood-brain barrier which is actually quite similar in makeup to the Gut cell wall; it also has tight junctions that are regulated by the same proteins and made up of the same proteins, and um, all of these sort of systemic reactions. And once you have leaky gut, it can have a knock-on effect to cause leaky blood-brain barrier, and then that's your barrier that protects the brain essentially weakened. And um, yeah, there's you know, lots of interesting stuff out there in the research.
0: Yeah, and you wrote a whole book about it as well, so. Question for you. So what you're saying is whatever happens in the gut happens in the brain and vice versa. They're always communicating with each other. And the vagus nerve is one of those communication sites. And leaky gut is pretty much the starting point to how this occurs, right? When food particles go undigested, when there's holes in our intestinal lining, these food particles go undigested and the immune system needs to deal with that. And what could happen over time if this is chronic an autoimmune response. So for example, if the immune system starts attacking the pancreas, it could be, they could turn into type 1 diabetes. If it's the thyroid, it could be Hashimoto. So uh, it's really, there's so many out there. So my question to you is this, we know that's the cause. What are the, maybe the top three things that are contributing to leaky gut, which is kind of the starting point to all of this madness?
2: So I think diet's a huge one. So the gluten, but there are other aspects of diet. And even if you have dysbiosis, so... Kind of unfavorable composition of the gut bacteria that in itself can lead to leaky gut um so i think in terms of thinking about the gut it's our largest interface with our outer world and we need to be just really mindful about what we put into our bodies because it will come into contact with your gut lining and there could be all sorts of different impacts that that can have
0: so what ali what ali eating cereal his whole life is not a good idea <laughs>
2: No, definitely not. I was—I really wanted to ask you which cereal was it, Ali? Uh,
1: Whole grain, heart healthy? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Some of it. I mean, I'm a connoisseur, so I I don't know if we should use up the rest of the time me talking about (laughs) (laughs) my favourite cereals. But if if the men came with guns and made me pick a top three, then without thinking about it too much, it might be Frosties, which I think is Frosted Flakes in America. Tony the Tiger, Cheerios were up there for me and yeah cheery corn cheery oats cheery rice and wheat and then i'm just getting emergency so i was <laughs> thinking about it even though i, I don't eat it anymore oh, no. and then a huge one for me which i'm not sure if you've got in the states was uh sugar puffs which is the the honey monster uh was the yeah you know do you remember the honey monster The uh so like puffed wheat with uh,
0: sugar and so honey that's milk. the problem
2: yeah absolutely so you think maybe you were putting that even people putting that into their body once a day that's going to be opening up your tight junctions in your gut but three two three times a day that's a recipe for disaster absolutely and then another big one is stress so we know that stress can increase intestinal permeability um so that's another one and then you know alcohol but that, that's another big one as well but there, there's just so many different possible factors um but I often just think of diet and the food that you put in as being the number one.
0: Yeah, yeah. So nutrition, stress, and then alcohol. So when it, for the nutrition part, and we're calling it nutrition, but these are really like Franken foods. But we want to avoid gluten. We want to avoid highly highly GMO pesticide laden foods. Like at least in America, corn and soy are pretty loaded with uh, pesticides, which can open up those tight junctions. Coffee, coffee. While I love coffee. It's one of the highest sprayed crops in the world. So we want to get a clean source of coffee. And then stress. I want to talk more about that. And then I'll have you answer, Rachel. And then I want you to pick up where Rachel leaves off, Ali. But how does that work, right? Mental stress. Somebody watching the news all day long. They're in a fearful state. Oh my gosh, the world's coming to an end. Whatever. COVID's going to get me. I'm going to lose my job. They're like going through all these negative, I call them stinking thinking thoughts. How does that mental stress and those negative thoughts create dysbiosis in the gut what is the connection there
2: so it definitely looks as though there is brain to gut signaling when you're taking in different sensory perceptions so watching the news or listening to negative news stories or negative news from whatever source all the time and there was a really nice um, animal-based study that I presented at a recent conference on and it showed that When they put these, I think it was mice in the study, when they put them under a stressor and it was quite short duration. So it was only two hours and they had measurable changes in their microbiome. So they had measurable shifts in terms of the different proportions of bacteria in the microbiome. And that resulted in leaky gut. So, yeah, I don't know that I can go into all the ins and outs as to. How exactly that happens, but it's obviously along these different communication channels, and it it still kind of boggles my mind to just even think about that. And I, I just think this, yeah, it's wild, and there's so much we don't know about the microbiome. I think we only know a tiny aspect of how that works, um, but it's definitely agreed crucial for.
0: Yeah, there's so much. There's so much that we're still yet to discover. Ali, what what have you seen with that stress gut connection, and what that does for the gut?
1: Oh, it's huge. You know, there's things, particularly around my skin, uh, conditions to do with my skin and my gut that I think are connected that can still flare up if I'm under immense pressure. So, if I've got too much to do for a sustained period of time, maybe I'm not able to get to the gym to de stress or go out in nature to de stress. And I notice it. You know, for a lot of people, I think actually it can be. Both the stress itself causing a, you know, a direct, you know, leaky gut problem, and it can be that under stressful situations we are driven to eat in a way that is not conducive to a healthy gut. So it can be a vicious cycle, and you know, there's all these amazing and and sad case reports from, you know, pioneering doctors in the field of leaky gut around particular diseases. Finding that, you know, stopping eating things like gluten, oftentimes dairy, that they get cessation of symptoms for all sorts of different illnesses. You know, there's there's reasonably good interventional data in the literature around um, schizophrenia and cessation of gluten, and oftentimes people just go back to eating the bread because there's a sort of addiction and long term. Habit there, which is hard to break, even though coming off gluten made their symptoms lessen or go away. And another doctor who I think is brilliant and was brilliant in this area, sadly, that passed away years ago, but it was a Norwegian doctor called Kali Reikelt. And you can find their uh, their work on PubMed, the the sort of Google for the medical literature. And Kali Reichelt's works brilliant. And, you know, there's a, a link I can share with you which shows kind of some of their correspondence around gluten and casein for autism spectrum disorder. And it's amazing. And, you know, I, I was reading all of this stuff over the, you know, in the first couple of years where I was interested in this, trying to really work out the root cause, which is as a physicist, what you're always trying to do, you know, you're kind of lazy and you just want to know what is the most upstream thing you can find. And for me, it came back to the gut every time. You know, that was where the sort of magic happened or the worst of it happened. Um, And another blog which blew my mind on all of this is Hyperlipid, which a lot of the kind of nerdiest people in the space really like because it drills down into the basics and tries to hit the very bottom of why mitochondria and uh, gut health is so important. And Peter, who wrote the Hyperlipid blog, has got some really interesting stuff on casein and gluten and the gut and tight junctions. And the reason that he suspects casein is potentially such a big issue for people with autoimmune or with gut issues, with mental health issues, is that the tight junction system is also found when um, breastfeeding mothers are breastfeeding and that it's uh, demand driven. So when the baby tries to get milk, then the tight junctions open because the milk is pushed towards that tissue. And so it kind of stands to reason that given that milk is an infant food for the most part of our evolutionary history, it seems that there's going to be some people who have a problem, most likely, with the signaling in the gut when we ingest these types of proteins and that the tight junctions are maybe a little bit confused so, very interesting stuff. I would agree that it's, there's a lot of unknowns. And I quite like the, the phrase, a healthy microbiome is the microbiome of a healthy person. And there is considerable individual variability in terms of what foods cause problems, in terms of what solutions might be best for the individual given their food preferences and history and culture and all the rest of it. But I would say that the idea that gluten is only dangerous for 1% of the population with celiac because it hurts them is ridiculous. And if you tried to get a drug through that caused as much harm as I think gluten does, then it wouldn't be approved. And I know that it feeds a significant proportion of the world's population. And of course, that's a huge issue. But a lot of celiac doesn't get diagnosed until a cancer is found that's been caused by that interaction. And I think this sensitivity is probably more like 10%, give or take 5% or so. And so, and probably everyone responds to gluten with irregular tight junction activity to some extent. So for me, there's really good kind of anecdotal stuff about people who stop taking gluten, heal their gut, eat lots of bone broth and that kind of thing, who can then tolerate dairy better. So for me, gluten's way up at the top. Stress is really high too. Dairy might be a big player. And then after that, I think the environment, the immediate environment of the gut can be decimated by seed oils. I think that's fairly robust in the literature. And people's, you know, like Tucker Goodrich is an interesting character because You know, he was sugar free for 15, 20 years, and it was stopping seed oils and uh, that that really stopped his IBS. You know, he'd even stopped gluten because of the the sort of ataxia, uh, stroke like symptoms that he'd had. And so I think seed oils are up there for me, too.
0: Yeah, for sure. For me, too. And on the point of gluten, even if you don't have celiac, for sure, it's problematic. Now, the gluten in America, it's different than the gluten in Europe, but I think they're all bad. We have more of the dwarfed sort of wheat here, which is even worse than the ones that are in Italy, for example. But I think they're all bad. I recently interviewed um, a woman named Dr. Wendy Trubeau, and she's terrific. She actually talks a lot about autoimmune and disease. And In her research, I have this in my notes here. She said, if you don't have the celiac gene, let's say you don't have it, that's the majority of the population, when you have wheat, when you have gluten, your tight junctions are open for a minimum of 15 minutes. If you do have the celiac gene, it stays open for four hours. And you think about people grazing all day long, like you were doing, you were eating your cereal all day long. You just keep those tight junctions open. And all of a sudden, you have all these food particles entering the bloodstream. It's just a recipe for, for disaster. And then on the point of stress, absolutely, I agree with both of you. I remember when I interviewed Dr. Bruce Lipton, he made the case that one of the quickest ways to destroy your immune system or wipe it out is to be in a fearful, stressful state. And we know most of your immune system is in the gut. So there's a connection, of course. But he gave the example of somebody who's getting a kidney transplant, uh, somebody who needs a new kidney, they're about to get their kidney in a, in a surgery. The surgeon who is about to perform that procedure will give them stress hormones, give that patient stress hormones because it, it, it puts their immune system to sleep. So the body could accept the foreign object. And that's essentially what stress is doing to us. It's putting our immune system to sleep. It's it's kind of putting our digestive system, our gut microbiome to sleep. And that's what the stress is doing. So yeah, I wanted to just touch upon that. Hey, Keto Camper. There's something that I do every single day to supercharge my mitochondria to help with inflammation and soreness from a workout. And that is the use of red light therapy. This is called photobiomodulation and there's a ton of research that shows the benefits of near infrared and red light therapy. The red light therapy that I use is from Bon Charge. I simply use it 10 to 20 minutes per day. It has both near infrared and red light. And every single day when I use this, I feel ready to take on my day. So whether you're dealing with gut pain, joint inflammation, or you want to just supercharge your mitochondria, get your hands on a quality red light therapy device. And I highly recommend the one from Bond Charge. They hooked you all up for being a Keto Camp podcast listener with a 15% off coupon code. All you need to do, check out this product and all the wonderful products they have available is to go to bonchargecom slash Keto and use the coupon code ketocamp at checkout to save 15% off your order. We will drop that link and coupon code in the podcast notes. Go check it out. And let's get right back to this episode. I have an interesting question for you both. And I think I know the answer. We'll start with Rachel. What are your thoughts on people who say, I'm only going to listen to people who share nutrition advice, who have evidence-based medicine. Only, I'm only going to pay attention to evidence-based medicine. What are your thoughts on that?
2: okay where to start um (laughs) gosh if we take the research literature as a whole there's obviously publication bias that that comes into it i I don't know how much that applies to the nutritional world of research but i don't hold a lot of regard particularly for the quality of nutritional research because of it all being epidemiology and associational um, data and not really any there aren't really many if any good interventional studies Um, so the vast majority of information that's out there in terms of the evidence for diet is all based on associational data that doesn't prove one thing or another and is flawed because of um, confounding factors within the populations that have been included in the study and then the the retrospective recall um, food frequency questionnaires and yeah it's just not really worth the paper it's written on (laughs) is my opinion, which is rather strong, but there
0: we are. I agree. Yeah, no, there's a lot of flaws and loopholes with it. What, what are your thoughts on it, Ali? Yeah. I mean, I mean
1: you've maybe heard the, the, the phrase that science progresses one professor's death at a time. And I was at the obesity conference that John Speakman and Kevin Hall arranged in London in October and i went along because i think they're they're really trying to engage with an open mind and in good faith and they got lots of interesting people to talk and you know it was a who's who really of kind of famous people in obesity research over the last 20 years so it was interesting and you can see all the talks on youtube and i would recommend you look but I think for me, C. Doyle's weren't really in there at all, even though they were. You know, they're in the data, but not really discussed that openly in that kind of setting. But what I noticed is that a lot of people, you know, it was all academics, pretty much. I think it was all academics. They gave really heartfelt kind of dedications of their talks to their supervisors for the PhDs, people who'd brought them up in the academic world. And imagine finding that what the truth is about a subject is in opposition to something that essentially your academic parent, someone who you love, didn't agree with. I think that is the greatest conflict of interest in science. It's not necessarily someone's on the payroll. It's that You've got strong feelings about people who, you know, have a strong opinion, and it's such a human endeavor. You know, I've seen a wee bit behind the curtain, having, you know, and involved a little bit with academia and the kind of discussions that go on when scientific papers are submitted, are kind of about oh, I hope this person gets is one of the referees. I hope this person's the referee in the peer review process. And when it comes back with um, notes or corrections that need to be made before it gets published, they can tell quite often who the referee was by whichever biases are emphasised. So it's an extremely human endeavour, and it's probably like the least worst thing we've been able to do to get science out there—the uh, least sort of the least bad solution. But there's a lot wrong with it, and. The idea that there is the one science, the one evidence-based medicine is just, it's ludicrous because you can find almost any issue where someone from Oxford and someone from Harvard more or less diametrically disagree. So I think evidence-based medicine at its best is open-minded and frank public discussions. I I think that's that's about as good as it gets.
0: Yeah, well said. And I think the most important thing for those who are listening right now and watching like the, the general audience out there who are not practitioners like us is to do your own experiment and do your own n of one. Get lab work done. Pay attention to how you feel. And if it works for you, who cares what the research says? Like, If it's working, it's working. Nobody can tell you different otherwise. So I believe that's the best way to do it, to go about it, to be your own guinea pig and try an approach. Maybe it's carnivore, right? You do carnivore. And this is how I got into carnivore um, four years ago. I heard so many great things about it. I remember I had Paul Saladino on my podcast four years ago when he was like 100% carnivore. And I was reading all these blogs and hearing all these stories about people who had psoriasis for 20 years. And just after a month of carnivore, it's gone. And people who are able to reverse all these autoimmune conditions. And it made a lot of sense to me that there's toxins in plants. That's how they defend themselves. And if you have leaky gut, which most people do, it'll make it even worse. So I wanted to start teaching carnivore to my students. But as a good practitioner, I have to do it first. I need to live it before I could lead it. So when I first did my experiment with carnivore, I did—I said, okay, I'm going to do 40 days of strict carnivore for the first time. I'm going to pay attention to how I feel. Um, at this time, I was dealing with a lot of autoimmune flare-ups. I have Raynaud's. So I was getting flare-ups every few days or so at this point. And I'm going to do lab work. I did a whole comprehensive set of lab work, C-reactive protein, homocysteine, full lipid panel, thyroid panel, a whole CBC count, a whole $3,500 retail panel. And I said, I'm going to do the same panel on day 40. And then I'm going to pay attention to how I feel. So I went all in, did 40 days. And I noticed I felt really good. Um, You mentioned, what was it? The zero carb zen. That's kind of how I felt, like zero carb zen. After the first week, it took like seven days to get there. And then I noticed my skin complexion improved. I was losing some body fat. My my brain was just on fire. And my autoimmune issues, I only had two small Raynaud flare-ups throughout the whole 40 days, which was a huge improvement at that time for me. Now, you know, the Raynaud's pretty much under control, but back then I was getting flare-ups. And then I did the lab work. And the lab work was so telling to me because every single marker improved, my C-reactive protein went from 1.1 to 0.5, which kind of flies in the face of conventional wisdom because people look at that, conventional doctors, and they say that's going to determine your risk of a cardiovascular event. Well, I ate nothing but meat and it dropped it in half. How do you explain that, doc, right? Homocysteine improved, All my everything improved. Yeah, my cholesterol went up, but that wasn't, you know, nothing, an issue for me. So I share that because that I believe, and you can let me know, Rachel and Allie, do you think that is the best approach? Like do your own experiment, do lab work, and then you know if you're down the right path or not?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I would be 100% supportive of that sort of approach. I always encourage people to do their own research as well. So, so not to just blindly believe anything that I'm saying or somebody else might be saying, but actually if they're interested to go out and look for other studies and, and read around topics if, if they're so inclined But I also did my own lab work uh, going into carnivore because it was, um, it just seemed absolutely crazy to me when I first heard of it. Uh, And I thought, yeah, this is crazy, but I'm going to give it a go. And yeah, I had the same experience. So, yeah, my HSCRP was 0.18, I think, when I checked it, although I hadn't checked it pre-carnivore. and. I had a couple of markers in the beginning, I think because my ratios of proteins and fats were a bit off, um, where like my kidney function looked a bit off, but um, I wasn't worried about that in the beginning just because I'd read around that and understand understood what was going on. But I've had other health markers that have improved since then. And for me, the blood lipids was one of them. So my triglyceride to HDL ratio is perfection now. And in the beginning it was a bit off, and that was because of coffee for me personally, but there might have been other aspects to that as well.
0: Oh, so you think the coffee was what raising your triglycerides? Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah.
2: Yeah, it seems to for me.
0: So how much time do you need to take off of coffee before you test?
2: Oh gosh. So that was three was three years ago now when I did that. And I think I'd only been off it a week when I retested and my triglycerides dropped um and then rechallenged again and they came back
1: up. So
0: yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any anything that you've done in terms of lab work and experiments, Ali?
1: Yeah, I did a bit of lab work when I did my October McDonald's experiment. <laughs> I called mctober <laughs> oh, no. Where I did uh, I just ate McDonald's triple burgers without the bun and I took them home and cooked some egg yolks with beef dripping, you know, beef tallow until just eyeballed how much I thought I would want and ate it until I was full. And some days I would have, you know, two triple burgers, six patties. And then other days I would have um, five and have maybe 15 patties. It just, it really varied. And I would vary the the amount of egg yolks I was eating just based on whether I wanted to eat them or not. So I did lab work at the start and the end. It was weird because my CRP was low. I can't remember the exact number, but it was, you know, well within normal range to start with. And then it was, it was fine. At the end as well. It was a bit higher, but I also had a, a little infection on my finger. And it was still within more or less within normal range. And I think something like that can easily do that. An infection can raise CRP by, you know, small amounts. I didn't actually measure my blood lipids because, you know, I'm I'm 39 and I wasn't all that interested in getting into that. I'm more and more interested all the time, you know. I I think that. There's black swans to the theory that keto is always good for the heart or carnivore. You know, you find people who do have fairly advanced cardiovascular disease once in a while. And it's something that I'm going to start thinking about more and more. But uh, up to this point, I've not really done too much measurement beyond my subjective, how I feel and how I look and whether I'm happy with
0: that. So you had nothing but McDonald's for a whole month. Is that what it was? Triple... Patties, double patties, and eggs for a whole month.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: McDonald's does not use seed oils, right? I don't think do they use seed oils or I think they just grill them. Not or... n- not to cook the
1: burger. That's right. So it was quite fatty meat and it's just cooked on the, the kind of hot skillet.
0: Right. But they'll use it for like the fries, but like for the burgers, there's no seed oils. Oh, so interesting. So then you just took it home and then you cook the burgers in beef tallow with with eggs. Wow, that's interesting. Well, I I probably wouldn't recommend that but it's interesting that you did that. (laughs) You actually felt pretty good. Um, Wow. Okay. Last question for you both uh, is, I always talk about my favorite supplement in the world, which I believe helps with mental health, helps with leaky gut, helps with autoimmune, helps with pretty much any condition out there. Uh, It's called vitamin G. And I call it vitamin G because that is the vitamin of gratitude. And I'm a big believer in what you appreciate, appreciates. What you feed energy to expands. I know you both believe that as well. So the question I like to ask my guests as we wrap up the conversation is, what is your daily dose of vitamin G today? Rachel, what are you grateful for today? And then I'll ask you the same thing, Allie.
2: Oh, so today I've um, I've not been in work. So I've had some free time and I've actually been quite productive. So I've been able to To read around uh, my topic of interest, which is everything we've just been talking about, but also just time to work out and get out in the sun a little bit today. So, and we've got a little bit of sun now in Scotland.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a good productive day. I love that. Uh, What about you, Ali? What are you grateful for right now? Well, it's funny. I was I was thinking
1: earlier how wonderful it is that there's a global network of people who are interested in metabolic psychiatry because when I first changed my diet, it was still, I know Atkins had been and gone in a mainstream way, but all the science around hyperlipids, blog, and thinking about mitochondria and, you know, eating once a day and eating carnivore and stuff, I was viewed by most people I knew and most people online as a bit of an anomaly, really. And now, I was sort of daydreaming earlier about the fact that at the time it was it was great to find an online tribe, but it was also a bit lonely. Whereas you know, I think friends and family were happy that I felt that I felt better, but they somehow didn't invert. It's, it's it's not even that I want them to eat like that. It's that I just want them to accept somehow that it it really is that great and that powerful. And so now that there's studies in Stanford and Harvard and Edinburgh University and all these places that are world renowned institutions, and there's a, a community of people legitimizing what I've known for a long time has is very powerful. I was really grateful for it earlier because it just didn't exist seven years ago.
0: Yeah, and you know, you, both of you are a big part of that. It's really a grassroots movement, and conversations like this. Uh, and the ability to even have conversations like this on social media is such a blessing. You know it's a blessing and a curse social media, but we want to use it the right way. So yeah, well said. Um, that is awesome. Your website is metside.com talking about the connection between metabolic health and psychology, which I love and it's that's where the focus should be. So I love that you have that. So medside.com, is there anywhere else where you want my audience to go check both of you out?
1: Sure. yeah, I'm, I'm quite active on Twitter. At Ally Transforms, which is A L L Y Transforms, and yeah, nightside.com Rachel and I are really excited about what's going on. The, the the sort of interest that's come from clinicians and also people with mental disorders who have come to us. And you know, I'm doing one to one coaching when I've got space. You can see on the website, you can book straight in for a chat. Uh, I do a free half-hour chat with people who want to do one-to-one coaching. And we're you know, uh, kicking off small group sessions soon. And in the longer term, we're looking at doing a kind of off-the-shelf coaching package where people can get access to videos and resources and a live Q&A with us once a week. And so MetSci is kind of at the ground floor and it's really exciting to see what's going on with that. But basically I'll keep everyone updated at Ally Transforms on Twitter.
0: Awesome. Alley Transforms on Twitter, and then MetSide.com. Rachel, what's your social?
2: Yes, yeah, so I'm more on Instagram than Twitter, although I am on Twitter at Dr. Rs Brown and then Instagram, I'm Carnivore Shrink.
0: Carnivore Shrink. I love that name. So we'll put that uh, down below. Go follow both of them on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm also more on Instagram than Twitter, but I understand Twitter can be fun. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. I love what you both are doing. I'm sure it's just a matter of time before I make my way over the pond and uh, speak at one of the conferences there and we could all hang out. So I look forward to that. But in the meantime, thank you for coming on the show and thank you for both of the work that you do. And I look forward to more collaborations between us. So Thank you both for coming on today.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. I
0: really appreciate it. hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rachel and Allie. They are fun. They've got great accents and they're doing some really important work. If you know somebody who needs this info, please share it with them. Go check out their website, Metpsy.com. That is M-E-T-P-S-Y.com. Go follow them on social media. We'll drop links down below for them in the podcast notes and consider leaving the show a rating and review if you haven't done so already. If you want to watch the video version of today's interview and all interviews... That can be found on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash keto camp. Go check out the 7-Day Keto Challenge Recordings available to you at a discounted price. That's going to expire soon over at ketochallengerecordings.com. Thank you for pressing play and letting us share the conversation with you today. I'll see you on the next episode.